long before Mel Gibson ever produced the movie, The Passion of the Christ, for centuries, theologians have described the last week of Christ's life as the Passion Week. Let me explain that to you so you understand um, a little better, perhaps. As Christ approached the Passover to be offered as a sacrifice for us, it is described as the Passion, the Passion of Jesus Christ. Now, we think of passion as emotion, and that's part of it, but really, it's, this word means the entire life fully engaged. The mind fully knowing what he was going to do. The will strong in deciding to die for us. And the emotions fully prepared to give everything in sacrifice on the cross. He uh, was, was a great teacher. He was a healer. But he came to die. He came to redeem us from sin. That was his mission. From the very start, John declared, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So as we enter this, this Passion Week, which, by the way, if you will notice covers over half of the book of John. Some have described the Gospels, all four of them, as being a passion narrative that all happen to have a long introduction. And I say that because the purpose of Christ's coming is the passion, is his death, burial, and resurrection. His teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, and all that he gave us meant nothing unless he could put his life inside of us, unless we could be redeemed from sin, bought back from the slave market, if you will, placed on solid ground, fully forgiven, fully in fellowship with him. That is by the redemption and by his work in the Passion Week and of that weekend where he died He was buried and he rose again. So all the Gospels are a passion narrative. They're all a story of the death, burial, and resurrection. They all have long introductions. John has the shortest of the introduction. Over half the book is the last week of his life. It's interesting to compare what we're going to read with the other Gospels to see how they kind of narrative it out and what they choose to write. But look with me, if you would, to... Oh, by the way, it it is helpful to um, take a look at Jerusalem during this time and have this cemented in your mind. To understand what the city looked like and where he was and how he entered and that kind of thing. This is first century Jerusalem. The Sermon on the Mount... I'm sorry, the Mount of Olives will be on the lower side of this particular view of Jerusalem. You have the upper city, uh, you have the temple mount, and the temple itself at the bottom of the screen. You have the upper city where the folks who were, well, wealthy lived. Uh, they lived in marble homes and uh, quite, quite fancy. You'd be surprised at how eloquent they lived. If you'll notice in the middle of that was an amphitheater that Herod had built, a Greek amphitheater for plays and the such. 
divided between the upper city and the lower city. You'll see that wall there. The lower city is where you and I would live, quite basically. Uh, They were uh, limestone buildings, small homes, some two-story, mostly one-story, dirt floors, dirt roads, um, quite common. Uh, This next picture of the city is a little topographical. Uh, You'll notice it's flipped around. The Temple Mount is now in the top side, and there's the Mount of Olives. Uh, It was really a city built on a hill, a mount, if you will, the Mount Zion. There were three valleys that converged into one, and uh, the Valley Kitron, uh, the Valley Hinnon, or Gienna, and then the Valley of uh, Bethsaida. And uh, if you were coming up from Jericho and climb that long road up, no, up, up to a higher elevation, you would turn the corner and see the city, and it was quite beautiful to look on. Uh, it was one of the wonders of that time to see the beautiful city of Jerusalem high and elevated and lifted up. But we go back to where the story lies today in John chapter 12. Uh, Welcome to the city of Bethany. There it is in its ruins. Huge, isn't it? Quite small. Uh, It was probably in one of these houses perhaps in this area that the story plays out for us today. John chapter 11, we'll gain our thoughts down at verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Remember John wrote it in A.D. 90, uh, and so he's writing to mostly Greek and Gentiles, so he mentions it's of the Jews. It's just a little note. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover, to purify themselves. When it says many, the number is hard to track. Uh, Josephus mentions at this time this, the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem were 80,000 to 100 to 20,000. Some refute that. During this Passover festival, that swelled four to five times. And again, it's hard to track because historians bicker on it, but it's possible that the city was filled with almost a million Jews. So when it said many, it means many. They came up early to go through certain religious rites and purification things to prepare themselves for the Passover weekend. So you can imagine the festive, full feeling of Jerusalem. Now during this time, there were heightened expectations of the Messiah showing up. Every year they had it. False messiahs would make claims. And so... Pilate would station some of the Roman army with uh, their troops down in Jerusalem during this time. Uh, So it was quite a festive uh, environment. Notice in verse 56 that they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, this was the buzz, topic of conversation, what do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? This is what they were talking about. Usually that's the case in worship services. No one's actually talking about the live worship. They're talking about buzz and conversation and things that are going on with people. And, and so here's this, is, is he coming? Is he not? Well, the reason why the debate was raging is, is written in verse 57. Now the chief priests 
And the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that, so that they might arrest him. Kind of gives a wonderful setting for a worship service, does it not? A bounty, perhaps, on a man's head, and everybody wanted to know, is Jesus going to show up? They're looking down the streets, they're looking around the corner, everybody's talking about him. He doesn't disappoint them. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover. Now these dates are hard to track. I believe this was on a Saturday, and let me tell you why. Passover was the following Friday at 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock to a Jew began the next day. So a Jew would look at tonight at 6 o'clock as Monday. Follow me? So 6 o'clock on Friday night actually began the Passover. So this was most likely on a Saturday. So six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Now let's go back to the picture, at least a, a couple of them. Whoop, 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 let's, yep, that's, that's it. Whoop, make, you, make you a little dizzy there. There's a road that leads out, and uh, I'm going to go to the next one. The, the, there's a road that leads out. If you'll notice it to the top of the screen, that's the road to Bethany. It kind of circles around the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives. So that down that road is the little city of Bethany. Notice verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I love this because Lazarus is now labeled differently than he's ever been labeled before. It used to be just Lazarus. And then it became known as Lazarus who had died. You look at the last few chapters, last chapter, that's all you hear. That he'd been in the tomb, that he had died, that he had died. He that is dead, he that is dead. And now, he's known as something completely different, as the one who Jesus raised from the dead. You, you know you can put your name in there, don't you? Amen. If you're saved. Amen. Caleb, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Ed, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Tommy, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Put your name in there. Isn't that beautiful? Hazel, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. You're labeled differently. The world can say all that it wants about you. You are one whom God sees as raised from the dead. Isn't that beautiful? Put your name in there. Never label yourself. Let God label you. And this is how he labels you if you know Christ. It's really a lot about how you look at yourself, isn't it? Maybe you've looked at yourself in the past of what people have said about you. You're in a lot of trouble if you've done that. Maybe you've looked at yourself, how you think about yourself. How you think about yourself doesn't matter. Oh, I wish it was this. I wish I was that. Jesus says you are raised from the dead. That's all you need to know. Notice in verse 2. 
So they gave a dinner for him there. Well, where's there? Well, Matthew tells us it is in the house of Simon the leper, not in the house of Lazarus. This is in the house of Simon the leper. Now, it's important to divide in your mind the different anointings of Jesus by different women. There were two different women that anointed him. And it's kind of fascinating to see when it happened. Earlier in his ministry in John chapter 7, while he was in the home of Simon the Pharisee, a prostitute came into the house, a lady of the night. This was not Mary. This was a different woman. Mary was not a prostitute. And she cried at his feet, anointing him with ointment and wiping his feet with her hair. In that house of Simon the Pharisee, there was nothing but criticism by the Pharisee in his mind. He said if Jesus was a true prophet, true prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this is. But now he is in the house of Simon the leper, obviously healed of his leprosy. There will be no criticism, at least from Simon. This Simon was different. The other gospel, Matthew and Mark, don't mention the lady at all, other than it's a lady who came and anointed his head. John's going to say that she anoints his feet. Well, which was it? It was both. But John chooses to just simply mention the anointing of the feet, not the head. Why would that be? Because in Matthew and Mark, she was anointing him as one would anoint the royalty of a king before he enters on a donkey the next day. But in John... John's not concerned with anointing him as the king. He's concerned about anointing him as the son of man who would give his life for us. Whole different theological agenda by the author of John versus the other two. Let's go on. So they gave a dinner for him in honor of Jesus. Now in the next few verses is a beautiful picture of the Christian life in the threefold aspect. It says that Martha served. Notice the rebuke that Jesus had given her earlier. She continued to serve. It wasn't that her serving was ever bad. But earlier when Mary had anointed him at an earlier occasion, she had been rebuked, but she continued to serve. Notice, this isn't the first time you find Mary at Jesus' feet and Martha serving. Now, before she hadn't anointed him, she simply was sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching. Different scene. So Martha served, and Lazarus, was one of those who's reclining with him at the table. Now, the tables at that time were low. They were like this. Uh, they weren't chairs to sit on. They, they leaned on large pillows around the table, usually propping with the, 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 left, the right hand and eating with the left. This is, this is how it, so he was reclining. 
I see a very comfortable Lazarus. Don't you? Um, I just mentioned, you have to be comfortable when you eat. Uh, if, if you're all tensed up, you can't eat. But here you find Lazarus, very comfortable. We'll talk more about that later. So here you have Martha served. Lazarus was one of them who's reclining with him at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed. By the way, we're not told how much the value of this is. We're told in the other Gospels. John isn't concerned about the value because what, Je- what she's going to do to Jesus has no value at all. The other gospel writers tell us that it was about a year's salary. Notice it says that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Let me say a word about women. Thank God for you. Thank God for you. Uh, so many societies keep women in bondage, even to this day. But notice the liberty and freedom and beauty of a woman's heart as she served the Lord. Where were the men? They weren't doing any of this. Thank God for you women. She was wiping his feet with her hair. Notice the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, let me just camp on Mary just for a few minutes. We'll get back to Martha and Lazarus. Notice her devotion to Jesus Christ. Notice that she wasn't focused on anyone else in the room. She didn't care what anybody thought of what she was going to do. She wasn't there to listen to his teachings. She was there because her heart was so overflooded with the love of Jesus Christ that all she knew to do was take the most precious thing she had and waste it, completely bust it, and pour it out on Jesus' feet. And notice, every, everybody in the room was impacted by her. Notice. Notice that, whether for good or for bad, the influence of her singular devotion to Jesus Christ filled the room with beautiful fragrance. How do we reach our loved ones? How do we reach the lost? How do we minister to other Christians? Listen carefully. By a singular devotion to Jesus Christ. And that is it. That is all. You can't change anybody within your family, within your home, with your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones. You can't do anything with them. But when you are devoted to Jesus Christ and your love overflows for Him and all you've got is tunnel vision onto Christ, the fragrance of that beautiful thing flows to everybody around you. That's why I reject any kind of teaching or any kind of systematic, business-like approach to reach the lost or to disciple people. Accountability partners. All kind of programs to build up the body of Christ. When each one of us is at his feet, breaking our life devotion over him. Do you understand? Oswald Chambers says, 
one man set free sets a hundred men free around him. It affects everybody. And when somebody comes and says, you know, your devotion to Jesus Christ has greatly impacted me. You're the most surprised person in the room. Really? I never intended that. Do you see the power of the influence of one person devoted to Jesus Christ? Pouring out everything to Him. Let me move ahead before we read the Scripture to say that what she did, according to Matthew and Mark, was to be preached along with the gospel as a memorial. Jesus said, wherever the message of the gospel goes forth, what she has done for me will go with that message. Now think to yourself, number one, John doesn't mention that because it's it's A.D. 90. The gospel was preached in all the known world. This, what she had done, everybody knew because they had gone along with the message. He didn't need to include it in his gospel. So how is it that what she had done is to go along with the gospel? When you hear a gospel presentation, do you hear the message of what she did? In a sense, you do. For this reason, what she did that day was basically take a years-long salary and bust it, and in the eyes of everybody in that room, wasted it. Wasted it. Jesus said, not a waste. When you come to Christ and you become a believer in Christ, the lost world all around you says this, oh, what a waste. You reject the values of this world and embrace the person of Jesus Christ. No, no, I didn't say biblical values. Okay? When you reject what the world says is important, all that stuff, you know, and you embrace the and your whole life is the person of Jesus Christ, the world looks at you and goes, what a terrible waste. They could have become something if they hadn't come to Jesus. Years ago, I heard a young preacher at University Baptist come and preach, and pretty talented young fella, very tall, very athletically inclined. In fact, he was a college basketball player who was probably headed to the pros. His father had great hopes for him. The problem is, in college, he got saved. He came home to Dad and said, Dad, I want to go preach the gospel. You know, his father disowned him. And this is what his father said. Go on and waste your life on the gospel. Say, this world will think you're nuts if you love Jesus and reject what they say is important. What they say is important. So really the outflow of the gospel is a wasted life on Jesus Christ. But God says no waste. Let's go on to the story. It says that Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples. Now, in the reading of Matthew and Mark, it says that all the disciples were indignant. Do you know that? It doesn't mention Judas Iscariot at all. It just says all the disciples were angry. Uh, John doesn't mention the other disciples. He mentions Judas Iscariot because Judas started it. 
One person complaining affects an entire group, does it not? All you need is one angry person, and all of a sudden, everybody's angry. Spreads like wildfire. I wish the love of Christ spread as fast as a rumor. Amen? Or bad talk about somebody. So here's Judas, stirring it up. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples. Now I'm amazed that God doesn't strike Judas dead at this point. I'm amazed that he's allowed to be in this room. You don't think Jesus knew what he was going to do? You don't think Jesus knew that he was stealing from the pot? We'll see in just a minute. And yet he was allowed to be in the house. Isn't that amazing? I'd have run him out on a rail, wouldn't you? I'd have exposed it. I'd have said, eh, the only thing you want is money out of that pot, isn't it, Judas? You don't... Anyway, let's read the story. We're jumping ahead. Who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Actually, the, the, the value is there. And given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. <laughs> I'm sure glad that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> stealing from the church. Stealing from the Lord. Stealing from the offering. Isn't that awful? Well, there it is, man. Don't be surprised if it happens today. That's why churches need to be very, very careful how they take the offering up, how they carry the offering over to the other building, how they lock it up. No one person counts our offering. There has to be at least three to count it. So we, we're careful. Notice, not because we think it's a thief in our midst, we just want to be accountable. Notice verse 5, verse 6. He was a thief. Jesus looks at him and says, let her alone. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me in the flesh. Soon I will be gone out of your presence in the flesh. While you have opportunity to bless me, bless me here. Now notice in what he says about the poor doesn't make the gospel all about reaching the poor. Neither does it make the gospel about ignoring the poor. Because it says that you'll always have the poor with you. The other gospel mentions as, as often as you can do something for them, by all means do that. Number one. Martha was happy in serving. This is a mark of the gospel. Go ahead and close your Bibles. Listen carefully. Notice how happy she was in serving. No one orchestrated Martha's serving. There was no list she had to sign up for to do this. No one constrained her. What she did was in a happy, joyful serving thing. Can I, can I give you a little bit of encouragement? If you serve the Lord in any capacity and it's a burden to you, please stop. Don't do that. He doesn't need it. But whatever is spontaneously flowing in your heart to do, by all means do. Whatever that is. Now the church has given you six or seven categories in which you may serve. God gives you an infinite amount of categories whereby you may serve. Do you know that? Some of you serve by cooking. 
Praise the Lord. We're all happy about that. Are we not? Some of you serve the Lord by singing or playing. Praise the Lord for that. Some of you serve by just doing things around here. Some of you serve by simply smiling at someone and giving them a word of encouragement. Do you know that? Some of you give a cup of cold water to somebody who's thirsty by just being their friend. There's a thousand ways to serve the Lord. But by all means, whatever you do, be happy about it. Because if you're not happy in doing it, it's not the Lord. You think the Lord really needs our burdensome labor? Some of you served on bus routes years ago and you hated and dreaded every bit of it. Some of you signed up for this and signed up for that because you felt pressure. God doesn't need any of that. I'm convinced that in the church of Jesus Christ, the more spontaneous the service, the better. If the Lord's laid on your heart to do something, by all means do it. Enjoy doing it. Be happy in doing it. And when you quit being happy doing it, quit doing it. Martha was just cooking because that's what filled her heart. And whatever your vein is, just do it. Number two, I find Lazarus was comfortable in his fellowship with Jesus. Are you comfortable with the Lord? Oh, that's a, that's a big question to ponder, is it not? Would you sit down and actually have a meal with him? It's the Lord! Oh! Is everything, is this cup filled? Is it? What can I get you? He just was so comfortable that he ate with the Lord. Oh, but I got to serve him somehow. I can't just sit with him. He kind of likes that. Oh, I got to make sure this part of my life is right and that part of my life is right. Well, I mean, he knows what he, oh, he just knew what I just thought. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Oh, so much pressure, man. Have I prayed enough? I can't really eat with him unless I've prayed enough. Oh, I missed Sunday night, sir. I can't, I can't eat with him now. I just missed a service. I was just, man, I, just, I was just rude to that gas station attendant. I can't eat with him now. The Bible says you may, well, the song says you may sup with Jesus anytime. But how comfortable are you with him? Do you know he died to break down every wall between you and him? And you should be as comfortable with the fellowship of the Lord. i to make sure I pray 40 minutes and then we can eat together. <laughs> really? It's always smiling and always happy. If I'm not happy, I can't eat with him. When you eat, you've got to be relaxed. How relaxed are you with Jesus? You know he wants you to be? Comfortable. You only get comfortable when you realize that God has put away all your sin. God has got, and, and Jesus wants to sit and eat with you. You ever eat with somebody you didn't like? Oh, yes, Jesus. Let me get out of here. Yeah. And number three, what happened to Mary was an overflow of the love of Jesus Christ in her heart. 
Never stress about how much do I love the Lord. How much do I love Him? You don't love Him at all. Do you know that? There is no love in your heart for Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit and the life of Christ within you. Do you know that? I've told the story before. My mom came to me distressed years ago. She said, Mike, I, I just don't feel like I love the Lord enough. I said, Mom, you don't. You focus on the love that Jesus has for you, you can't stop. You can't stop it. Jesus said it'd be a fountain inside. By the way, he doesn't pour into you. I just need the Lord to pour into me so I can overflow. He is in you right now. What He described it as a fountain within you bubbling up. Focus on Him. Rest in Him. Eat with Him. See how much He loves you. And stay tunnel vision on that. And your love for Him will just overflow back to Him. You will find yourself at His feet. You will bust the most valuable thing you have onto His feet You will wipe his feet with your hair. And when somebody suggests that you've wasted your life, you'll have a good hearty laugh at them because you've wasted nothing. No hint of sacrifice is ever mentioned to the one who's overflowed with love for someone else. The sacrifices we do for someone we overflow in love for them is not a sacrifice at all. It is our greatest joy. What was happening in that house was not orchestrated. It wasn't programmed. There was no guilt that brought it on. It was Mary focused on Jesus, and she couldn't stop herself. She couldn't stop herself. I'm convinced that the Christian life is, um, how shall we say, organic. I begun to buy organic milk. Did you know that? I don't know why. I just decided to buy organic milk. I just taste kind of like regular milk. Maybe they do something different to the cows down there. I don't know. Organic. Do you know the life of Christ within the church is organic? It's a living organism. I got an email from a pastor here in town who wanted a survey done of of what churches are doing to actually help people grow in, in the Christian life because they want to do a study so that they can approach a collective thought of how to run discipleship programs within the church. I was as kind as I possibly could be in my response back to them. <laughs> Basically, I said this. Why in the world would you need a plan? Why in the world would you need some kind of program? I said, it sounds more like something for a business rather than a church. More for the organization of a business than the organism of the body of Christ. I got a reply back. I won't tell you what it was. (laughs) (laughs) What has to be organized doesn't have the taste of the Spirit of God in it. Do you live your lives like that? Do we live our lives like that? Do you have charts on the wall of what to do every day? You get up every day and organically live your life flowing. It is no different than the Spirit of God and what He does in our lives. It's organic. Nobody has to say, you serve, you serve, you serve. By the life of Christ, it just organically begins to happen. 
Scary, isn't it? You can't put your finger on it. It's not charted. We don't know. There's no five-year plan. There's no ten-year plan. There's no two-day plan around here. We don't know what we're doing down here. Because when we figure out we know what we're doing, it's organization of a business rather than the organic body and life of Christ living in and through us. Do you understand the difference? This is what was going on in the house. Martha was serving and nobody put guilt on her to do it. Lazarus was sitting at the table enjoying the comfort of his fellowship and he didn't have to pray. He didn't have to do anything to get to that table. He just sat down with him. And thirdly, Martha, Mary just overflowed with love and wasted her life on Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? This is beautiful. You know, they need to shut all the seminaries down and all this training of how to build churches, really. Save it for Taco Bell. That's why revivalism isn't for the church. Revivalism is for the lost becoming saved because that's where the dead come to life. You want a revival? Go preach to the lost. You want a revival? Get an evangelistic thing going. Why would you have to revive the life of Jesus if it's here? And it is. 